before this morning's message as we've been doing with this series on the core doctrines i use a verse as kind of a leaping off point since this really is on a set of themes or topics instead of a specific verse so our leaping off point is going to be in the book of romans chapter 5 verses 1 to 5 if you're able to i'm going to ask you to stand in the honor of the reading of god's word we do this because this is holy scripture romans chapter 5 verses 1 to 5 i will read it and i encourage you to follow along here now is the word of the lord therefore since we have been justified through faith we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of god not only so we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance perseverance character and character hope and hope does not put us to shame because god's love has been poured out into our hearts through the holy spirit who has been given to us and the lord bless the reading of his word this morning please be seated this is week three of this series of messages on the core doctrines of the christian faith for the past two weeks we focused on the importance of the doctrine of the bodily resurrection of Christ, which among other many things, means that one day, not only since Jesus' grave was empty on Easter Sunday morning, one day ours will be empty as well. Last week I talked about the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. And I emphasized how it's not our works, but it's our answering the call to repent and to believe in Jesus as our Savior. Today we're going to focus on a doctrine called the Holy Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct personages is often the term used, but always one God. Now understanding this concept really can be difficult, and so we often look to sources of wisdom to help us grasp the full meaning of it. People turn to different places for their answers. Now we know the ultimate answer is God himself is revealed through his word, but sometimes people seek answers from friends, family members, <coughs> sometimes, sometimes they even ask their neighbors. Oh, the timing, there we are. <laughs> if you guys remember the 1990s television series, Home Improvement, you can imagine Tim seeking advice for life from his highly educated and philosophical neighbor, Wilson. I can just imagine a conversation. Tim goes outside and has this talk across the backyard fence, and he says, Wilson, last Sunday our pastor was talking about how God is three persons but always one God. And he said, how can something be three things and one thing at the same time? And I can just imagine Wilson saying, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, Tim, that reminds me of the mystery of the Holy Trinity. And Tim would... And say, oh, yes, oh, yes. And then Wilson would say, no, 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 good neighbor. And then he'd go on to tell him that it reminds him of the, the second century battle when Tertullian and Praxius wrestled over the issue. And Tim would say, oh, yeah, thanks, Wilson. And he'd go inside and he'd go to explain to his wife, Jill, that he now understands the issue. And Jill would give him a funny look. And he would then say, well, we have trouble understanding it. Because Wilson told me that years ago, some old turtle was too practical when he had his wrestling matches. 
Isn't that the kind of conversation that would happen in that show, if you're familiar with it? <laughs> but if we look back over the last 1,800 years, the church has tried to do a better job of explaining this than Tim and Wilson's might have done. To help people better understand this and so many other doctrines, the early church developed things that we know as the creeds. Now, typically a creed is a statement of beliefs that people found necessary to, to formalize a, a, a doctrine, usually in response to somebody who was trying to push a belief that was in conflict with the scriptures. Now, the creeds are not scripture, but they're useful tools in helping us to understand scripture. And one of the first of these that I think many of us have heard of was the Apostles' Creed from the 4th century, written in part to combat the Gnostic teaching that was filtrating the early church. The Gnostics were people who denied Jesus was truly human. They taught that he only appeared to be human. But in so many ways, this early creed directly affirms many of the same core doctrines that we will speak to in this sermon series. Another one you probably know is the Nicene Creed. It came shortly after the Apostles' Creed. It was written to combat what was called the Arian teaching, the opposite of the Gnostic concern. The Arian view, followers of a heretic named Arius, taught that, that Jesus was um, not God. It taught that he was only human. The Apostles' Creed sought to reinforce the idea that Jesus was truly human while also being truly God, and the Nicene Creed that he was truly God while also being truly human. But the last creed I'm going to mention this morning speaks to the Trinity. The Athanasian Creed, from around the year 500. And it's a rather long creed, but I'm going to quote just the opening passage of it to give you an idea of how thorough it speaks to this concept of the Holy Trinity. So here's the opening quote. We worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost are all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Close quote. Now I hope that you can see how this statement contains such great detail, but also such exacting specifics. Creeds were written to confront false teachings that were being pushed by some groups within the early church. They were also written to help us understand the truth and the importance of these same core doctrines that today we consider as the essentials of the faith. Now, creeds must never replace scripture, but they are useful tools as we seek to understand and to apply scripture. And that brings us back to the issue of the day, the concept of God as a fully three and yet fully one this is a vital core doctrine in Christianity. And in general, all three main branches of Christianity believe in this. Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Protestantism. All would agree God is one essence but three persons. He has one nature but three distinct aspects. One of my seminary props worded it this way. God is one what and three who's. Now, some people would say that's a contradiction, to which I would say no. A contradiction would be to say that God has only one nature, but he also has three natures. Or that God is only one person, but he's also three persons. We have trouble understanding it, but that doesn't mean that it's a contradiction. 
So let me give you a couple of illustrations, two of which I shared with the children. I used the example of an apple and an egg. For example, a chicken egg has a shell, a yolk, and an egg white, but it's one egg. Another illustration was the apple. The apple, this particular one that fell off the tree in the backyard of the manse, one of the few that the dog hasn't gotten a hold of, by the way. It has the skin, the flesh, and the seeds. Three parts, but it's one apple. The weakness of this and the egg illustration is that God cannot be divided into parts, by the way. I'll get back to that in a moment. But there's a third illustration that my understanding is it comes from Ireland. It originated with St. Patrick, and it talks about that he encountered some Irish chieftains in a meadow, and the leaders were confused by this doctrine they were hearing of the Trinity. So Patrick bends down and he pulls up a shamrock, and he points out that there are three leaves on it, but it's still one plant, just as the three persons of the Trinity are one God. Now, if you're more science-minded, you might appreciate this one. We live on the water here, and we're familiar with water in a solid state, a liquid state, and, well, we can't see it. Through evaporation, we're familiar with water as a gas. No matter which physical state it's in, its composition doesn't change. It's always the same formula, H2O. Whether it's floating unseen in the air, or whether it's floating in your iced tea. The point is, is that the weakness with that illustration is that that is an example of switching from one state to another. God does not switch states or modes. That idea that God manifests himself in only one mode at a time is called modalism. It's an incorrect understanding of the Trinity. So that gives you some background on it. So now let's take a look at what the scriptures say. You know, one of the famous passages about this is from the book of John, right at the beginning of the Gospel of John, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. In this very well-known passage, the phrase, the Word, is referring to the Son of God himself, who has always existed. He is not a created being. Later, John 8, 58 speaks to the same issue. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. And he's referring back to Exodus 3.14, when God spoke to Moses through the burning bush. A little later in the Gospel of John, the Bible says that the Son is one with the Father. John 14, verse 8 and 9. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So these are just a few of the many examples in Scripture that the concept that God the Son, who has always existed, was never a created being, has always been one with God the Father. But what about the Holy Spirit? The first Christians knew the Holy Spirit was a distinct personage. John 16, 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. And Holy Spirit is referenced in places such as Romans 8, 27, and the Father, who knows all hearts, knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. Now these and many, many other passages point to the Holy Spirit as a distinct 
personage of the triune God, but is always one with the Father. Now, I know this is a lot to take in, but these are just a few of the standard biblical passages that we quote when we're talking about the teaching of this core doctrine, the triune God. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct personages while always remaining one God. There is a term for this. It's a Greek term, homoousios. It means of the same substance. The Son is one with the Father. The Holy Spirit is one with the Father. Now, people who are critical of this concept will often say that the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible. But the New Testament makes many references to the concept. Romans 1.4, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of from the dead. Romans 15.30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. All three parts of the Trinity are referenced in there. 2 Corinthians 13.14, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. All three parts of the Trinity are mentioned there. John 14, verse 16 to 17. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. And then one of the famous ones, John 14, 26, Jesus said, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. All of these speak to the Son being one with the Father and the Holy Spirit being one with the Father. The actual term Trinity didn't come until a number of years later, but the concept has always been accepted by people who are true believing Christians. So that's in the New Testament. But what about the Old Testament? Are there references to the Trinity in the Old Testament? I think there are, including at the very point of creation itself, which was accomplished in the presence of the Holy Spirit, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. This is very Trinitarian language. The Holy Spirit was already there. The Holy Spirit is not a created being either. He was already there, always was one with God. In Genesis 1.26, we hear it all the time, but we don't think of it this way. God speaks in the plural. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. I don't think he was speaking the Queen's English. I think that he's speaking in the plural. The Old Testament, so many references pointing to a coming Messiah. One of my friends in Gaylord said the Old Testament is saturated with references to the coming Messiah. Even going so far as to openly say that he would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. So why didn't people recognize this back then? Well, I would suggest that with so many pointers to the coming Messiah, they were looking for the wrong thing. 2,000 years ago, the Jews, under Roman occupation, were desperately hoping for a, a triumphant, conquering, military hero type of Messiah, not the lowly, suffering servant that was described in Isaiah chapter 53. 
And when they failed to recognize their Messiah, it was due to their stubbornness and their hard hearts, which is why they demanded that Jesus be crucified for what they claimed was his blasphemy, because they themselves had become the definers of what God had said. Now, let's take a little side note on that particular issue. Think about it. Those Jewish leaders, those high priests and Pharisees, 2,000 years ago, here they are in the same room as the very prophesied Messiah, who they knew was coming. And they spoke down to him. They belittled him. They plotted against him. They called him a false teacher. They demanded that he be put to death, even when the Roman governor, Pilate, gave them a way to avoid that situation. As Christian believers, we need to really be sure that we recognize Jesus as God the Son, prophesies way back from Genesis chapter 3. And we need to see God the Holy Spirit as described in the Bible, and we need to see God the Father as described in the Bible. Because when we do that, we will see that he is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, fully three, and yet always fully one. Now, through the second and the third century, theologians had to defend the doctrine of the Trinity from false teachers. There were errors that were put forward. A couple of them included tritheism. You might say, what's that? It was saying that it's not one God. Those are three separate gods, including teaching that the Son and the Holy Spirit were created beings, that they weren't always there. Others taught that, yeah, God's one God with three different personages, but only functioning one at a time. That's the view called modalism that I mentioned earlier. That's also an incorrect understanding of the triune God. And these errors existed back then, and they still exist today in different forms. If we're not careful, elements of this can slip into our teaching. But do you remember earlier when I had my fictitious story of Tim and Wilson talking about this whole issue? Wilson mentioned two real people in the early church. There was a theologian named Tertullian, and he was the first one to use the term Trinity. It was the year 213 A.D., and he was trying to defend the biblical description of God because there was a man named Praxius who was a modalist. He held the view that God has three separate modes, only functioning in one at a time. It wasn't until about the year 500 AD that the Holy Trinity was fully accepted as official church doctrine. Now, it had always been the true nature of God, but it took that long before it was fully accepted. And by the way, it was the Roman Catholic Church that vigorously defended that doctrine, and for that we should be properly grateful to them. Now, when we consider this concept of the Holy Trinity, we're really studying theology, the Greek term theos, which refers to God. And when you, those of you who are grammarians, when you add the suffix ology at the end of a word, it refers to the study of that item. Theology is the study of God. And through a very careful study of those early Greek and Hebrew scriptures, the early church was able to very concisely articulate what the Bible teaches on this matter, that God exists as an eternal trinity. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three who's and one what? Fully three, while always being fully one. Now some have tried to create a graphic to illustrate this, such as this one here with three congruent interwoven arcs. Others have used a much more complex diagram here. But this doctrine of the Holy Trinity 
has many places of support in Scripture, and I personally see it as the best explanation of God's divine nature, even though his attributes are so vast that our minds can't fully wrap, be wrapped around the idea. One commentator worded it this way, said, Try to understand the Trinity, and you will lose your mind. Try to deny it, and you will lose your soul. So let's have some final thoughts. There we are. When we have trouble understanding these core doctrines, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't believe them. Just as we're saved by grace through faith, we accept these concepts by faith. Let me ask you a couple of rhetorical questions. How many of us fully understand all the aspects of gravity? That being said, is there anybody that denies that gravity is real? You're about to cross the Mackinac Bridge for the first time. You may not fully understand the engineering concepts of the bridge, but there is nobody who suggests that it isn't safe to drive across. Just don't go beyond, just don't go beyond the speed limit and trust God, right? There are many things in life that we don't fully understand, but we have faith that they are nonetheless true. In the end, that's where we have to come down on a discussion like this doctrine of the Holy Trinity. Our God is one God who eternally exists as three distinct personages while never ceasing to be one God. He is fully three while always being fully one. This is the God of the Bible. May his name be praised forever and ever, and may we lean on his promises until that day that he calls us into his presence or he comes again, to which all God's people said, Amen. You guys are getting good at that. <laughs> we are going to close with a very Trinitarian hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. It's number two in your uh, hymnals. Please stand. <laughs>